When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate. And for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments. For the past quarter century, Slate podcasts have been covering all the major news events, from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. And it's the only network that has a narrative philosophy show on its roster, us. If we've become a part of your listening routines, we ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash hi-fi plus. That's H-I-P-H-I plus. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash hi-fi plus. Sometimes you're in the right place at the right time to provide the last moments of joy in someone's life. And you don't even know it. In October of 2001... Jay Wallace was scheduled to give a talk at Princeton's philosophy department. He's a philosophy professor at Berkeley, and Princeton was where he got his PhD. So in some ways, it was a homecoming for him. It had already been postponed because of the terrorist attacks a month prior. I think it was one of the first days that flights were possible across the country again. That's Jay. The talk was called The Publicity of Reasons. He was arguing against the view that if you have a reason to do something, other people have a reason to help you do it. And Jay didn't think morality was that demanding. Instead, he wanted to argue that if you have a good reason to do something, other people have a reason not to interfere. You can think about that for a little bit, but whether you agree or not is not that relevant to the story. It's about what happened during the talk. In his paper, Jay used the Greek letter phi to stand for any kind of action. So his thesis would read in the paper, if you have a reason to phi, then other people have a reason not to interfere with you phying. But when he gave the talk... And in my cluelessness and excitement about being back in Princeton and talking to some of my former teachers and so on, I read it as my reasons to pee are reasons for other people not to interfere with my peeing. (laughs) I was oblivious to the scatological reading of Wallace's thesis. That's my friend, the philosopher Mark Schroeder, who was in the room at the time also. I was just really interested in the content. And of course, this provoked images in the audience of people standing at urinals tempted to interfere with the peeing of the people next to them. 
If you want to argue against the idea that if your friend has a reason to do something, you automatically have a reason to help them, peeing is a pretty good counterexample to that thesis, actually. And there was, you know, understandable kind of widespread kind of sniggering in the audience. In particular, two of the most senior and eminent members of the department, well, they got the giggles. Yes, they had the giggles, exactly. Yes. And I particularly remember both Dick Jeffrey and David getting caught up in the moment. Dick Jeffrey was Richard C. Jeffrey, who was retired by then. He was famous for devising a rule for changing your mind rationally when you're not quite sure whether your evidence is 100% true. And David was David Kellogg Lewis, reputed to be, even then, the greatest system-building metaphysician since Gottfried Leibniz in the 17th century. I remember raising my hand as high as I could at the very beginning of the question period to try to get into the questions early and keeping my hand up after every question who was called. And finally, it got down to the last four or five minutes of the question period after an hour of holding my hand up. And finally, he points directly at me, and I blasted in my question. I was like seven or eight sentences. I was going fast because I was so eager to ask this question. And Jay Wallace says, I'm sorry, I was calling on David. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I turned around to look at David. He was just giggling. He'd been giggling during the talk. He, uh, he said, that's okay. Let Mark ask his question. And David never asked his question. Friday talks at Princeton start around 4 p.m., with question and answers ending by six. Then there's a reception that lasts about an hour, after which a group goes out to dinner in town. It was a pretty large uh, dinner party, actually. So we were seated at a table. Restaurants in Princeton, they're often BYOB, bring your own beverage. And so the group had brought along a couple of six packs of bottles of beer. And, and in the, the usual clumsy way, it took us a while to kind of figure out what to order, but we placed our orders. And then there was this just epic delay in getting any food to eat. In my memory, I think of it as being nearly an hour before any food came. At this point, we're probably talking about 8.39 p.m., which wasn't just annoying, but dangerous for David Lewis. He was a diabetic. So without some carbohydrates in his system, he could go into an insulin shock. In fact, at that point, David was in trouble. I remember not being aware of David's distress at first, and then it coming up as a topic as he had uh, another beer and was trying to get some calories. And eventually the food was taking so long to get there. It just wasn't showing up. Toward the end of this period, before the food arrived, he needed to go. David abruptly stood up. He walked out of the restaurant. And as far as I know, that's the last time anyone who knew David saw him. We don't know how the rest of the night went for David Lewis. He didn't drive. His house was another maybe 20-minute walk from the restaurant. Steffi, his wife of many years, had just left town that Friday for a race. It was a bicycle. It wasn't a race, it was a tour. That's Steffi. I interviewed her before she too passed away in 2019. It was a century bike tour that lasted all weekend. I came home and discovered him stone dead. And it turned out that what he died of is what a lot of diabetics die of, uh, which is diabetic 
induced sudden coronary heart failure. I, I was shocked, of course, you know, as I reflected on it in the days following, somehow it was salient, obviously, to me that my talk had been the last philosophical event that David had attended. Uh, and I felt, honestly, a, a bit bad about that. I mean, David just lived for philosophy. That's what he did. And, you know, I, I, I think he he respected me and I got along well with him. But I kind of wish that he'd been able to attend a talk that would have been more interesting or important or inspiring. Wow, that's selling yourself way too short, Jay. I mean, come on. He, he seemed to be in, really engaged. Well, I, I think he found my malapropism incredibly funny. I don't know how philosophically engaged was. From Slate, this is Hi-Fi Nation. Philosophy in story form. Recording from Vassar College, here's Barry Lamb. On this season of Hi-Fi Nation, we're beginning with a miniseries on the life and work of David Kellogg Lewis on the 20th anniversary of his death. You just heard about his last moments in this world, what he called the actual world. You'll hear about some of his firsts. He was 60 years old. And on his view, there is a version of him who is still alive, right now, in another world. That version would have worked to solve a few more philosophical problems, and would then retire to Australia and ride trains, his favorite pastime in his favorite country. In both of these worlds, he'd remain an important and influential figure in 20th century thought that most of the public hasn't heard about. It's because he wasn't a celebrity, he wasn't political, and he had a slightly otherworldly quality to him just like his philosophy. But he didn't lack ambition. Like some of the 17th century figures before him, he sought to unify math, science, and human consciousness into a coherent whole. In four episodes, through his friends, his colleagues, his students, and his family, we're going to hear about how an awkward, quiet man born into a body that never stopped betraying him ended up with the audacity to advance a theory of how everything fit together. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
My name is Megan Sullivan. I am the Woolsey Family College Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. How did David Lewis contribute to our understanding of time travel and philosophy? Here's why philosophers and some other people love David Lewis. David Lewis came to a significant number of his philosophical views through thinking about time travel and the many paradoxes of thinking that a person could travel into the past and change it. It was also his preferred way of teaching students philosophy. His undergraduate course at Princeton was centered around the paradoxes of time travel. So if you watch a lot of time travel movies, which I do, and you're even remotely awake during the movies, they almost always hit a big plot hole where you're just like very confused about how the whole plot is working. I just watched The Tomorrow War. They're traveling to the future to fight aliens, and there's this question about... What happens if you take people from the past and you send them to a future war and then they get killed? Are they not going to live in the present to create the future people? And of course, you have the famous grandfather paradox, which is whether it's possible to travel back in time and kill your grandfather so that you will never have been born. But if that's true, you will never have traveled back in time to kill your grandfather. So you will be born. So that's why people love David Lewis is he kind of takes our concern for coherent, interesting, backward time travel seriously, and then tries to use some tricks in analytic philosophy in the 20th century to make those stories work out. But another thing that's really interesting about Lewis is in the process of trying to explain to you how you might be able to go back in time and have an adventure, he also ask some interesting questions about what it is to be a person through time. And those have implications for our ordinary life. David Lewis thought about all things in the world in four dimensions. It's how he thought about people, too. One of his signature views was that the four-dimensional self was the only self there was. Imagine that you're filming someone with a stationary camera as she walks slowly from left to right, from one end of the room to another. Then, instead of running the film, you take each frame and lay them on top of each other, so in the end, you have a still picture of every moment of that person as they start from the left and end up on the right side of the room. What you're seeing is a person in four dimensions, all at once, maybe about 10 seconds of them. It looks like a streak through space, a worm. What you're seeing is the four-dimensional self. For David Lewis, a person isn't an individual you meet in front of you, in a room, in three dimensions. That's only a part of them. The whole person is the entire streak, the entire worm that they inhabit in space and time from the moment of their birth to the moment of death. This is going to be the theory of the self that solves one of the paradoxes of time travel. Remember this day, fans, September 28, 1941. It may be a history-making day. All eyes are on this man. Ted Williams gunning for a 400 season. He's hitting it even It's September 28, 1941. The number one song is Blue Champagne by Jimmy Dorsey. 
and Ted Williams stepped up to bat on the final day of the regular season in a doubleheader, going 6-for-8 to end the season with a 407 batting average, a record which hasn't been surpassed since. In Oberlin, Ohio, a town of 4,300 people, David Kellogg Lewis was born. He was the eldest child of Ruth Hewitt Kellogg Lewis, and she was a distinguished medieval historian. And John D. Lewis, he was a professor of government at Oberlin College. David is the eldest of three. He has a brother, Don, who runs an auto repair shop in Austin, Texas, and who, like all of the Lewises, has all the brains in the world. Good folks. A little bit of uh, academic snobbery there. Donald Lewis, David's younger brother. More my mother than my father. That attitude totally passed by David. Even with his incredible success academically, he once told me that if he traveled, he'd, he'd like to sneak off and talk to the janitor where they were saying because it was more interesting. David's sister, Ellen, was the baby of the family. Well, he was definitely my best, most nurturing family member of all. I'm Ellen Lewis. I'm David Lewis's sister. I was six years younger than him. Our parentage was highly academic and rigorous. We always had this little five-fold seating at the dinner table every night, and I just remember being totally out lost. I was the kid, and I was the dummy of the family. And the three of them were talking amongst themselves constantly and obviously vivaciously and understanding one another and, and sort of uh, sometimes sparring. I, I just remember being totally left out, but in awe. And then when David and I were together, he talked at my level, which I just thought was incredibly kind of him. But I just felt like I had an ally in David. I was just the kid. When David was a boy, he had, he had polio when he was, I don't know, eight, nine years old. It affected how he walked, and that was all his life. And so he walked with a funny sort of a toes-out step. He had um, one lazy eye that never worked very well. He was supposed to uh, practice it by wearing a patch over the good eye. And he hated to do that, and my mother tried everything you know, punish him for not doing it, bribe him for doing it and everything. And he just wouldn't do it. So his vision never was very good. So David was home, home from school with polio, with Ewart being his, his tutor. But while he was home, getting to the point where he could go back to school, worked on medieval history with him. David was interested in history. He was not one but two years younger than the kids in his class after he excelled by reading during his whole year in bed with polio. Um, he probably just felt very sort of physically, you know, not at their level. Originally, his field of science was chemistry. There was a room in the basement where he had a chemistry lab. They ran gas in there for his Bunsen burner. and One of the most precious memories I have is watching him turn test tube colors from blues to reds or the other way around. And just his love of learning and discovery was something that I, I just always thrived with. I was very, very curious about science and about what we could observe 
uh, in the world, and so was he. And I just felt like that was a special little world where we had a lot in common. Every Wednesday night when my father had his political science seminars upstairs, he would like to uh, do something down there that, that made a big stink, some kind of a big sulfurous smell. You know, he'd come up from the basement to the living room. So he had, you know, some degree of mischief in him. The first paradox of time travel that David Lewis solves is the paradox of personal identity. Logic says that nothing can have contradictory properties at the same time. An apple can't be ripe and also not ripe simultaneously. David Lewis can't be a chemist and not a chemist at the same time. And ordinarily, that's fine. Apples and people change over time. They're never contradictory at any given moment. But if David Lewis travels back in time as a 50-year-old philosopher, he can walk into his childhood basement and look right at his younger self. And now, David Lewis is both a chemist and not a chemist at the same time. He's both 14 years old and 50 years old. He's also standing and not standing. He's one person, but he's also two. And the contradictions multiply. The solution is simple once we see people as fundamentally four-dimensional and not three-dimensional objects. One part of David Lewis is standing next to another part of David Lewis. One part of David Lewis is 14, the other is 50. One part is standing, the other sitting. So there's no contradiction. There's only one person with two temporal parts. Just like one part of you was a neck and is straight, and another part of you was a finger that's bent. The implications of this view are many. The 14-year-old and the 50-year-old David Lewis don't have a thing in common, an essence that is three-dimensional and that makes them two ages of the same person. No one has such an essence, because if they did, the contradictions come back. Is the essence in a 14-year-old who's sitting or in a 50-year-old who's standing? Is the essence one thing or two things? According to David Lewis, the possibility of time travel forces us to see the self as a four-dimensional space-time worm. At any given moment, you are just part of a person. Your younger and older selves are part of that same person. Only once your life is complete is the whole person complete from beginning to end, birth to death. Hi-Fi Nation will return after these messages. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Well, all I want is party down. Come along with me. It's spring 1957, the dawn of rock and roll, and the second of Dwight Eisenhower's terms. In Oberlin, Ohio, a 15-year-old David Lewis is about to drop out of high school. Junior year of high school, he was taking half college courses. So, you know, my mother wanted him to be more, a little more of a normal mainstream high school student who went on dates and had girlfriends and stuff, dressed better and so forth. So I know this, but people out there don't know it. David was not a suave-dressing ladies' man type person. (laughs) No, not at all. Right. As far as you know, growing up, he didn't express any interest in that kind of thing? None. He was one exam short of the regent's requirement. He would have had to have taken civics that was taught by an athletic coach. He didn't think it was a worthwhile class. He would have had to have taken that to graduate from high school, so he never did. So David Lewis is not a high school graduate. He went straight to Swarthmore and never did his senior year of high school. His first choice of major at Swarthmore was chemistry. He was a future scientist type. David's father had a Fulbright one year, and all of them spent the academic year of 1959-60 in Oxford. And while he was at Oxford, he also attended various lectures by, you know, some of the big names. Alan Hayek, friend and colleague. People like Grice and Austin and Strawson and Ryle. He was supervised by um, Iris Murdoch. John Bigelow, retired philosopher. And she was a little annoyed with him that he wouldn't read other philosophers much. He would just try to work out his own ideas on free will. But he was doing it by reason and logic, not by a leap of faith by any means. She took him in hand and made sure that he did a lot of philosophy reading and took very great care over his papers in the way the tutorial system worked. That made a huge difference to him. That year in Oxford, during the height of Oxford philosophy, was transformative for the teenage David Lewis. He returned to Swarthmore and switched to philosophy, where he joined a remarkable class of students that ended up being giants themselves in the field and future colleagues. At the same time, other things happened that would also have lifelong consequences. 
diabetes hit hard when he was like around 18 or 19, maybe. Uh, he was home at Oberlin for Christmas vacation and ate a lot of rich food and stuff. And I think he just passed out. That's when he went into a, like a diabetic coma. And then he had a family doctor that everybody loved. He was a total idiot. Well-meaning fool. He didn't figure it out very quickly. He always made wrong calls. He made wrong calls with me. He made wrong calls with everybody. Well, not with much in the way of lasting effect, though, with, it turned out, life-shortening cardiac consequences. Imagine a complete timeline of the world, from the first moments of time until the last. Like any other timeline, you draw segments on it to tell you when events happened and for how long. That complete timeline David Lewis called external time. It's the fourth dimension of the universe. Every single event in the history and future of the universe will be on it. It's a representation, a complete map of our entire world, the actual world. In our world, there isn't any time travel, so everyone who has ever existed will be a smooth, continuous segment on that timeline. Dwight Eisenhower, 1890-1968. David Lewis, 1941-2001. But in a world where there is a time traveler, their appearance on the external timeline will not be one, but two, maybe more segments. Megan Sullivan, Notre Dame. I, next year, invent a time machine and decide to go back to the year my parents got married, 1980, and hang out with them through their early uh, adulthood. So I live 40 years. Then I get in the time machine and I go back to 1980. And let's suppose I decide to never time travel again after that. I just live out the rest of my life through the 80s and 90s. From the standpoint of like the manifold, if you look at like where's the earliest Megan Worm part, it's 1980. Where's the latest Megan Worm part? It's 2022. So from external time, I look like I took up 42 years. But in fact, in Megan time, I lived 40 years the normal way. And then I probably lived another 40 years after getting out of the time machine in the 80s. So I lived in Megan time. I got like 80 good years. Personal time is the length of an individual's entire space-time worm. Every individual in the universe will have a worm of a certain length, depending on how long in time they've lived. But time-traveling individuals will have a space-time worm that looks, well, cut up in the external timeline. My worm starts off normal. It starts off like a little baby, grows, grows, grows until 2022, and then you look back in space-time and you'll see that another part of my worm just kind of appearing in that part of the space-time manifold. And then a big part of my worm could sit next to a smaller part of my worm, the same way you could take an earthworm, you know, cut it in half and move the front part of its body to sit right next to the back part. I mean, it's a mean thing to do to a worm. Time travel is violent and brutal <laughs> on this front because it literally takes part of you and just dislocates it or makes it discontinuous in a way that's, you know, weird. But it helps to solve the dreaded 
grandfather paradox. Suppose I want to go back in time and I want to kill baby Megan. Like, you know, I want to commit suicide in a very interesting way. Not possible on David Lewis's framework. This is where the philosophical fisticuffs start. The way Lewis thought about worlds in four dimensions is a lot like the way we think about worlds in three dimensions in common sense. We don't think of spaces as appearing or existing simply because we inhabit them right now. That would be ridiculous. A space in the world with no people in it exists before people get to it and will continue to exist after people move out of it. The past and future are just dimensions in time, like east and west are dimensions in space. The future exists as much as the present, as much as the past. None of these times are waiting for current people and things to inhabit them to start existing. For somebody like David Lewis, nothing ever comes into or out of existence or like pops into existence or pops out of existence. In particular, facts about the world don't pop into or out of existence. In three-dimensional space, if your house is painted white on the inside, you walking into the house doesn't make the space and its color pop into existence. Similarly, in four dimensions, the future and all of the facts that are true about the future don't just pop into existence just because you come to live in it. Those facts were always there. David Lewis thought about worlds as being determined by all the facts that are true in them, past, present, and future. We live in a world where the Mongol Empire happened in the 13th century, and where Joe Biden is the president of the U.S. today. A world in which the Mongol Empire never came to power in Asia and where Joe Biden lost the election of 2020. These are alternate universes where the facts are different from our world. And this is true of future facts as much as past ones. Every future fact that is true of our world gets to define our world as much as every past fact does. So if in 2024, Biden wins re-election, then that future fact is part of our world. Any alternative fact is only true in an alternate universe. So back to time travel. If it's a fact about our world that Megan was born in 1982, and it's a future fact that Megan at 40 will travel back in time and try to kill baby Megan, then it's already determined in the world that Megan survives to travel back in time to try to kill herself. Both facts exist in our world, have always existed, and in fact defines the world that we live in. That's why adult Megan can't kill baby Megan. It's not that she can't. She doesn't. And we know she doesn't because it's already a fact that she survives long enough to travel back in time 
to try and kill her baby self. You traveled back. You have a gun. You're pointing it at baby Megan. 1983. David Lewis is next to you. You're about to shoot. Here's what David Lewis is going to say. Okay, you can fire, but you're not going to die. Yeah. Because here you are. So that, that's what he's going to say. That's the David Lewis movie. The David Lewis movie it could be one where you fire, and then it backfires on you, right? And it doesn't kill the baby. And then you try to fire again, and maybe, like, I don't know. Everything can happen in that movie but you dying. A bird can fly in front yeah. of the bullet. Yeah. There are all these like just miracles. <laughs> like really, really the, the way bullets normally fire out a gun, a gun at close range, it works. But in this particular movie, we know that it doesn't. Now here's another movie and this is the Looper movie. Now I'm battling my future self and then I shoot myself and then the future self poofs, disappears in front of me and boom, that's it. Like that's not a David Lewis movie. That's another movie. Now, is there an argument that that's actually the coherent story and that David Lewis is wrong? Yeah. And don't imagine time as this like static spread out space time manifold. Instead, think about time this way. Time is a growing block. This is the view advocated by Peter Van Inwagen. The past and present exists. But the future doesn't, until it too becomes the present. The growing block view says the future comes into existence, but it doesn't exist eternally as a dimension extending into the whole of the future, as on David Lewis's view. This view implies that once someone travels into the past, into 1980, Since 1980 is now the present, everything from 1980 to 2021 disappears. The whole block of space-time goes poof, and that stops existing, which remember is like the cardinal rule for David Lewis is nothing ultimately stops existing. Now you can change the future, because the future doesn't exist yet. But remember, the future was your past. You lived it before you traveled back in time. No, not on this view. You have these memories. These are now false memories. You have no past. There's no space-time worm anywhere in the world that's continuous with you now. You annihilated your history when you time-traveled. David Lewis has a point. On this alternative view of time, Time travel is genocide. It's more than genocide. You've annihilated the entire universe for a period of 40 years in all of the ways it had evolved over that time. As for the grandfather paradox, you can kill the man that would be your grandfather. And once you have, you won't be born in the future. But then, how could you be here having time travel? Because you're not the person who will have been born. You're just some entity living in the present, having killed another man. You have no history. That history was annihilated, doesn't exist anymore. You're a free-floating entity in time with no grandfather, no father, no mother. The present and past doesn't contain anything in existence continuous with you. Your worm was annihilated when you time-traveled. That's the price you pay 
for time travel in a growing block universe. Now, like, is that the right view? Is that what time really is and what people are? No, even Wagon doesn't believe that. But one of the things the philosophers are trying to do is just say, all right, let me give you ways that could make this logically consistent. You'll think about them and whether you want to make a movie about them, but you'll also wonder, like, what does it mean to have control over your future? On David Lewis's view, any time travel story where someone changes the past or future is actually an alternate universe story. There's no annihilation, no genocide of people and times in the actual world. Given the four-dimensional view of time and of persons and worlds, if you wanted to travel back into the past or into the future and stay in the same world, you're going to have to live with the fact that everything you plan to do, you've already done. And everything already done can't be undone. Every fact about the world, even your own time travel in it, has been written into the very world itself. Change anything about the story of the world, and you've entered an alternate universe, not a different time in the same universe. So get it straight. Is it time travel in the same world you're interested in? or travel from one universe to an alternate universe. Because those are very different things. And David Lewis has a lot to say about alternate universes also. Next time on Hi-Fi Nation's miniseries, The Man of Many Worlds, the Harvard years. He seemed attracted to me. I, I had known a lot of fairly strange people, inarticulate people in high school, so I was used to that. David Lewis learns about love and language and comes close to failing out of his PhD program. Hi-Fi Nation is written, produced, and edited by Barry Lamb, Associate Professor and Chair of Philosophy at Vassar College. Executive Producer of Slate Podcast is Alicia Montgomery. Editorial Director for Slate Podcast is Gabriel Roth. Senior Managing Producer for Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Managing Producer for Slate Podcast is Asha Salusha. Editor of Slate Plus is me, Chow Tu. Production assistance this season provided by Jake Johnson. Visit HiFiNation.org for complete transcript, show notes, and reading list for every episode. That's H-I-P-H-I-Nation.org. Follow Hi-Fi Nation on Facebook and Twitter and at the website for updates on stories and ideas. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.